Amen to that. May we never lose the wonder of the cross. Turn with me, please, to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, and also to Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Jeremiah 9, 23, Romans 11, 33. My hypothesis is that Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, the word of Yahweh spoken through the prophet, Jeremiah can be fanned out through the entire epistle that we call Romans. And this is in accord with Romans chapter 1 and verse 2, that the gospel of God's Son is in the prophets. The word about God's Son is in the prophets. And also in Romans 16, 25 and 26, that the words, the writings of the prophets, reveal the gospel of God about his Son. And we're going to see, I'm, I'm seeing in ways that I didn't anticipate, that this is in fact the distilled message of Romans. The gospel is a world-ending apocalypse. You should never forget the power, the potency, the shocking, astonishing value and power of the gospel. The gospel is a world-ending apocalypse. It ends the world in which sin and death have authority over all flesh. So it is a world Ending apocalypse. It shatters the age in which wisdom calls foolishness the word of the cross. It shatters the age, which Galatians 1.4 calls the evil age, in which the wisdom of this world calls foolishness the word of the cross. The gospel of Christ is also the power of God for salvation. And I agree with many of the commentators that that is part of the thesis verse of Romans in one sixteen of Romans. The gospel of Christ is the power of God for salvation because it is the power of God for destruction of all power and authority apart from God's unconditional grace Universal mercy and unrestricted love. I will say that again. The gospel of Christ is the power of God for salvation precisely because it's the power of God for destruction of all power and authority apart from God's unconditional grace, universal mercy, and unrestricted love. The gospel is God speaking in these last days in a son, in his son, Jesus Christ. So there's a wonderful affinity, a correlation between Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 and Romans 1, 1 through 4. The gospel of God about his son, and in these last days God has spoken to us in his son. That means spoken to us definitively, finally, fully in his son, Jesus Christ. 
in Paul's definitive eschatological text, or the text where he takes us further than anywhere else into the future of God and the future of God's people and the future of the resurrected Christ, in Paul's definitive eschatological text, the Son submits himself to the Father, who will have brought all of his enemies under the feet of his Son, so that God will be all in all. And that's 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four to 28. The universalism in Paul's epistles is absolute. And one is stunned into astonishment, to say the least, when one sees this universalism emerge and this universal horizon of God's salvific wisdom, all rooted in that wonderful cross. So one cannot help but exclaim with Paul once this universal horizon is glimpsed what we have here in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the wisdom. Oh, the depth of the wisdom. Remember Jeremiah nine twenty three. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Because it all falls apart in the light of this wisdom. Oh, the wisdom, the depth of the wisdom. Oh, the depth of the wealth and wisdom and knowledge of God. Let not the wise man boast in his wealth. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Riches in this world are very uncertain and insecure. Oh, the depth of the wealth and the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now notice this, how unfathomable are his judgments. Unfathomable to most theologians, most preachers, most evangelists, most Christians, because those judgments are not unto damnation, but unto salvation. So how unfathomable they are to man. How unfathomable are his judgments, and how incomprehensible his ways of acting, his ways of acting, my translation. For who has ever known the mind of the Lord, and who has ever become his advisor? Who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? All of this, my translation, for from him and through him and to him are all things. That means all the beings of the entire universe of proportionate being in all of its times. To him be the glory for all the ages, amen. In the horizon of Romans, the depth of the wealth of God that Paul is in awe of is defined earlier as the wealth of God's kindness, clemency, and mercy, Romans 2, 4, where the wealth, the plutos of God is mentioned, it's specifically with regard to his kindness, his clemency, and his mercy. In Romans nine twenty three, it is the riches of his glory to the objects of his mercy. Behold, the riches of God's glory to the objects of his mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory. Romans 9.23. 
In Romans 11.32, which literally kicks off this Romans 11.33 song of praise and doxology, it is disclosed that he will have mercy or that he has done mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the wealth of God's mercy. Consequently, God's judgments about which Paul is in awe, oh, the depths of the knowledge of God and his judgments are unfathomable. So God's judgments about which Paul is in awe are universally salvific judgments. God made the judgment to consign or imprison all the Gentiles in disobedience. Makes that very clear throughout Romans. And God also spoke the judgment to imprison all the Jews in disobedience. That's right in Romans 11.32a. So one may say, well, those aren't exactly unfathomable judgments. He imprisons the Jews in disobedience. He imprisons all the Gentiles in disobedience. He puts them all in one prison. That's not an unfathomable. And I would say you're right. It's not unfathomable. What's unfathomable is God puts them all in prison under disobedience to declare mercy on all of them. That's what's unfathomable. And so one may say, those are hardly unfathomable judgments. And Paul would say, see, I called him, remember? True. But what is unfathomable is the judgment that God would show mercy to all the disobedient. And this demands the judgment of the cross. Where the obedient Messiah, Jesus completed his faithful obedience to God and gave himself to a God-abandoned death for us, was buried and raised up to life for our rectification, to give life-filled rectification, justification, if you want, to all the disobedient in Adam. So God's judgments are indeed inscrutable because the wealth of his mercy is unfathomable. It's too deep to fathom. Moreover, his ways of acting are incomprehensible because he is the incomprehensible God. And that's so important in the theology of the word of God. Incomprehensible doesn't mean that God is not knowable. It just means that he's not fully, entirely knowable because... As Paul said, after knowing him, that I may know him. In Philippians 3.10. Now, if God is incomprehensible, then our point of viewing him would always be on the move. This describes 39 years of history of Tetelestai Phalanx, on the move. Our theology would not be fixed and unchanging, but always in development, always evolving. God is um, incomprehensible, and so our viewpoint is a moving one. 
A fixed system of dogma, listen carefully to this. You say, how long did it take to prepare this message? And I'll say 40 years. A fixed system of dogma is a betrayal of an incomprehensible God. God is knowable in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. We are urged to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because he is not entirely knowable in this intersection of the ages in which God is giving us bifocal lenses to see an age that's gone out, that's going out, that's passing away already, and to see the age that has come in with the crucified one, the raised one, the resurrected and ascended one. If God is not incomprehensible, then we may have a fixed theology. It will be a theology that yields a binary view of humanity. A bifurcation of humanity into the saved and the damned. That's what a fixed theological system like Arminianism or Calvinism or many systems of evangelicalism or dispensationalism does. It bifurcates humanity into the saved and the damned. If God is incomprehensible, on the other hand, then our theology will be a science done by man with the aid of God in which there will always be development. Now, as a pastor, I've seen, because of this development, I've seen people offended and fall off and fall away because they see a changing, moving viewpoint. They'd rather just get into one particular place and sit in a throne chair and say, okay, I see this part of God. That's all I need to see. But we're on the move. We grow in the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. If God were comprehensible, then there would be a point in which we would stop growing, stop moving, and we would die, spiritually speaking. If God can be reduced to a list of attributes and put into a box, then the box will become a coffin. Not for you, but for God. God is dead, is the theology of Friedrich Nietzsche. And if he went by the theology of a fixed system, he's right. God is dead in a fixed theological dogmatic system. If God can be reduced to a list of attributes and put into a box, then we have God in a coffin and Nietzsche would be right. God is dead. It's the theological conclusion where God is deemed comprehensible by men and women. God is dead is, listen carefully, the logical theological conclusion where God is deemed or considered comprehensible by men and women. In other words, we got them all figured out. His ways aren't past finding out. We found them out. 
He elects some to salvation. He elects others to damnation. It's all figured out. God's that way. If you don't like that God, think he's harsh, demanding, and more evil than the Nazi concentration camp guards, tough. God is just. That's what theology sounds like. And you wonder why people are running en masse from churches. I don't blame them. That's not a pun, running en masse from churches. That's not a pun. But God, thank God, is the living God. And all are living to him. To him, all are living. And all are living to him, whether they know it or not. His judgments are unfathomable because they're made in God's wisdom. See, all this is going toward let not the wise man, the sage, the this, this scientifically conscious, the common sense man, the theologian, glory or boast in his wisdom. God's unfathomable judgments are made in God's wisdom. His judgments are saving or salvific because our God is a God who saves. Or better, our God is the God who saves. That's Psalm 6820, in case you want to hang it on your fridge. Our God is the God who saves, and escape from death comes from the Lord God. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Our God is the God who saves. He's none other. He is no God that judges or damns. He is the God who saves. And escape from death comes from the Lord God. Psalm 68.20. God's ways of acting, his ways, ha-hodai, his ways of acting, are incomprehensible because they include the rectification of the ungodly, the justification of the ungodly, Romans 4.5. That's in the left flank, pressing toward the center. God's ways of acting are incomprehensible because they include, without an evident open explanation, the free justification of the ungodly. But that wisdom is only understood in the wisdom of the word of the cross. God's ways of acting are incomprehensible because they include the logic of the cross, which is foolish to the philosopher and the intellectual, the scientist and the theologian. With his theological knowledge. The word of the cross is God's wisdom. So the wise man of this age cannot comprehend it, so he calls it poppycock, if he's British. Nonsense. Foolishness, or if he's Greek, moria. Moria. Moronic. But what did Yahweh say through Jeremiah and throughout Romans? The wise man or woman must not boast in his or her wisdom, but let the boaster boast in this, that he or she knows and understands that I am the Lord who does mercy. He does mercy because he's the God who saves. Who does judgment? He does judgment because he's the God who saves. And who does righteousness? 
He does righteousness because he's the God who saves. And righteousness is his saving act in Christ. Therein, in that gospel, is revealed, unveiled apocalyptically, the righteousness of God. From faith to faith means, and this is my interpretive key to Romans, means from the faithfulness of God revealed in Christ to the faithfulness of Christ participated in by man. That's Romans 117. Therein is revealed the righteousness of God from or out from as an act of God proceeding out from faithfulness, God's revealed in Christ, going to faithfulness, Christ's participated in by us. Now I'll be repeating that one over and over again because that's the thesis of Romans in Romans 117. So he does righteousness. All of these things mean he does salvation. In fact, God is not only the salvation. God doesn't only save. God is the salvation that he does. His, we could say, his essence and his act are one. His very existence and his act are one. He is the act of our salvation. He can't do other as a savior. And then he says, who does judgment and who does righteousness in all the earth, in all the earth, in all the earth. For these acts are the fulfillment of my will, says the Lord in Romans 9, 24. The wise in this world's estimation often, and I love this insight from 2 Peter 2, 12, they insult what they don't understand. They pass it off. They insult it. They say, that's stupid and ridiculous. I even read a famous Hollywood person who says, I don't believe in God. It just doesn't make sense to me. And so they blaspheme, Peter says. They even blaspheme what they don't understand. They speak evil of what they don't understand. That's 2 Peter 2.12. And the wise in this world estimation often insult what they do not understand. So the wise man must not boast in his wisdom. Because if you measure his or her wisdom against the God who is wise... It will come up abysmally short, which is why Romans 125 says, professing to be wise, they become total fools. In the light of God's wisdom, the one who professes to be wise is shown to be foolish. I'd say that to the scientist, the philosopher, the intellectual, the politician, the political philosopher. I'd say it to him now because I said, I really don't want you to look like a fool at the parousia. So consider. But only the Lord can open up the heart. That's why I was thinking this week. How did the church at Philippi come about? Started by God opening the heart of a woman named Lydia. He opened her heart to receive the word. There's no receiving of the word unless the Lord opens the heart. There's no believing of the word unless the Lord imparts the faith. In fact, he kind of creates it. At the moment. The gospel that I preach not only has a radical universalism, but it also has, and please get this down into your soul, a radical individualism, 
a radical individuation. There's a radical shattering of everybody's world, of each person's world, by the gospel. But it's the shattering of the world in which they were being destroyed. So then, all the cataclysmic language that Jesus uses, the stars falling from the sky, the moon turning to blood, sun turning black, that's really what happens when the gospel hits an individual who's wise in their own eyes. The gospel of Christ, the logic of the cross, shatters the world of the boasting intellectual or the boasting strong man, or the boasting rich man or woman. The gospel of Christ, the logic of the cross, shatters the world of the boasting intellectual. His insights fall like meteors from the sky to the earth, where they're no longer brilliant. The sun of her wisdom is darkened. That's the wise person in this world. The moon of his common or scientific sense turns to blood. The powers of his or her intellect are irreparably shaken. God's wisdom is salvific. So look at Jeremiah 9 for a moment here, 23 and 24 in the English translation. This is what the Lord says. I'm not interested in anything else anymore, really. I'm interested in what the Lord says. So every waking moment that my eyes still can focus, I like to read. I like to study. Every waking moment that I'm watching TV is something in the back of my mind, in the subconscious mind, working about what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. The wise person must not boast in his wisdom. The strong person must not boast in his strength. We could say his or her to all of these, incidentally. The rich person must not boast in his or her wealth. Instead, if someone boasts, let him boast that he understands and realizes that I am the Lord who does mercy. And judgment and righteousness on all the earth. These are three key words in Romans. Mercy and judgment and righteousness on the earth, or we could even say epi over the earth, because when he did that, it was when Christ was over the earth, hung upon a cross. Because these things constitute my will. These actions constitute my will. These are the things we could say if we were to humanize God a little and say, these are the things I'm excited about. These are the things I'm obsessed with that's the new word i'm obsessed by this we're now living in an age where people actually brag about their psychological distortions which we used to call obsessions so then this is what constitutes my will says the lord so let's fan it out in romans art romans the epistle let's fan it out starting with this little phrase This is what the Lord says. So when I study Romans, I have to say, this is what the Lord says. Jeremiah spoke as a prophet of God. God spoke by the mouth, one mouth, many prophets. By the mouth, one mouth, 
of all his prophets. In Acts 3.21, which can be compared with Romans 15.6, one mouth, many prophets. God continues to speak in his son in the New Testament writings. He continues to speak in his son today. He continues to speak in his son in the New Testament writings. In these last days, God has spoken to us definitively in his son. Paul is in direct continuity with the prophets, just like Peter was in his sermon at the beautiful gate as he stood next to a man who was totally restored miraculously as a foreview of the restoration of all things. Peter was in continuity with the prophets. Paul's epistle continues the tradition of God speaking by the mouth of his prophets, even after he has spoken finally and completely in his son. So what we speak must be in accord with God's final word in his son. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Romans 1, 1 to 4. You want to do a Bible study? Compare those two passages. What the Lord said through Jeremiah, he says with explicit fulfillment in Jesus, his son, in Romans. So speaking specifically, this is what the Lord says in Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, is noticeably fanned out throughout the entire epistle we call Romans. This is what the Lord says through Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says throughout Romans, the epistle. The wise man must not boast. Let's fan out the word just a little more. The wise man must not boast. The wise person must not boast. The wise of this age, as Paul called him in 1 Corinthians 1. For God ordained one thing that's awesome. He ordained that the world by its wisdom would never come to know God. He even ordained that you'd never come to know God by studying the planets and the creation. So the Jews judged the Gentiles who tried to know God through the creation and ended up being idolaters. But God said the same thing happened to you Jews. You thought you'd come to know God through the Torah and through your obedience to the law, and you too became idolaters. So I think I'll just pen you all up in the pen. Etentiary. The maximum security penitentiary called disobedience. And then, unfathomable to any of you, I'll just open the prison gates and let you go. Because the judge was judged for you. The Son of Man was lifted up. And even though he was lifted up by you, it was with the view of your justification. Now, that's unfathomable. I don't want to fathom that. I want to worship God. Boast is kakaomai here in the Septuagint of Jeremiah, and you'll see it in print. And I do recommend that you read the very rough notes, but they are notes, but they're kind of rough, and they've only been edited three or four times. They need to be edited six or seven times, and that will be a book someday maybe after I die. This is a key word. Kalkaomai, to boast, in the Greek text of Romans. It's found in Romans 2.17, 2.23, 5.2, and 5.11. It's also found in Romans 15.17. 
Or Paul said, God forbid, may God never let it happen that I should ever boast in anything with regard to my missionary enterprises except that which Christ has performed by me and in me. The noun form of kalkaomai, which is kalkasis, K-A-U-C-H-E-S-I-S, appears in Romans 3.27 where the question is posed, where is boasting then? Where is boasting then? If the wise man can't boast in his wisdom, the strong man can't boast in his strength. The wealthy man can't boast in his riches. Where is boasting then? If a Jew can't boast in his circumcision, if a Gentile can't boast in his supposed knowledge of God through natural theology, where is boasting then? And Paul simply answers, it is excluded. The point of this Q&A in Romans 3, 27 and 28 is not to exclude all boasting, but merely the boasting of human beings in themselves, especially when it comes to being rectified or made right in God's eyes. God does not rectify, set right, make right on the basis of the works of the law. For no flesh will be rectified better than justified because God doesn't just declare righteous, he makes righteous. No flesh will be rectified in God's eyes by the means of circumcision or by any other merely human means. That's Romans 3.20, quoting Psalm 143.2. So boasting is excluded on the basis of the law of faith. On what law is this excluded? On the basis of works? No. On the basis of faith, a law of faith, that is, the authoritative declaration of God that all are rectified through the faithfulness of Christ. And I'm not done with that phrase, pistu Christu, because it isn't just subjective genitive. And it isn't just objective genitive. There's a third genitive, a third way. It's called the plenary genitive, in which both are infused. Both are fused. The faithfulness of Christ and the faith of Christ in us, the participation by us in that faithfulness, they're both there. And so that's going to just advance our study on Pistis Christu astronomically and our understanding of the gospel. And so all are rectified through the faithfulness of Christ in which they participate one by one. They participate in God's faithfulness one by one. In other words, this that happens to every happens to each. What happens radically to every, where life is given to all, happens radically to each. And so... Boasting is excluded on the basis of God's declaration that all are rectified through the faithfulness of Christ in which they participate one by one by the grace of God. And Wednesday, I hope to ask the question, quits it. Grace. What is grace? God does not rectify the righteous. He doesn't rectify the righteous. He doesn't make righteous the righteous. He rectifies the ungodly what he does because he saves Christ died for the ungodly Romans 5 6 God justifies the ungodly Romans 4 5 
Who is he that accuses you then? God who justifies or Christ who died? Who's going to do it? After that, it doesn't really make any difference who's going to accuse, does it? God rectifies the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. God justifies. Christ died. Who's going to lay any charge against the elect? Boasting is excluded. Salvation is entirely the work of God through the fidelity of Christ. Boasting is excluded. This undercuts the boasting of the Jewish saints in Rome. And this is where it gets right to the heart of the matter. What Paul's trying to do, what's he up to here in Rome? What's he up to right here? Why do he write this letter? This, this undercuts the boasting of the Jewish saints who assumed, either consciously or unconsciously, that circumcision has something to do with justifying or sanctifying effect in their life. Or that it is somehow an identifier of true Israel. And so it undercuts their judgment of Gentile saints who remained uncircumcised. Not only that, but the undermining of boasting by the Jewish believers in Rome would have the effect of reducing, if not eradicating, the provocation of Gentiles. In other words, as Galatians 5.26 says, Stop provoking one another to anger and jealousy or to anger and envy. If you're in a competitive church where everybody's trying to compete for superior honor or compete for superior performance or prestige, then those who seem to attain it are going to provoke others either to envy or to anger. Instead, we walk by the Spirit, says Galatians 5.25. So there was polarity, there was a polarization, there was a fragmentation. This has a political, sociological impact also, Romans does. Because we're talking about the dominion and the kingdom of God in which Caesar's knocked out. And the powers that be are done away with. So that is powers under sin and death. And we're going to get into a balanced appraisal of that in Romans 13. You say you want a revolution. Some Christians do. Lots of Marxist Christians do. But is revolution just part of the foolishness of man's wisdom? And is the real revolution the word of the cross? We'll see. On the other hand, you got the people that are the Yes, men. You have naysayers against government, but then you have yes men for government, and they never criticize it. They never, and the prophets were constantly doing that. So there is a balance. There's somewhere in between. There's a middle of the road in the sense that you don't slide off into the ditch by taking the middle. So then, this undercuts boasting. The undermining of boasting stops anger, polarization, fragmentation, competition for honor based on Torah observance involves empty self-glorying, which creates a provocation or an aggravation of others, either to anger and envy or both. You can go to Galatians 5.26 on your own for that. In any church, or any organization for that matter, in any church, 
in which there's competitiveness for superior honor based on human performance, there is inevitably conceit and self-boasting, which inevitably provokes others to anger and envy. In 2 Corinthians 10, 12b, very important verse, it says, in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they are not understanding. You want to boast? Boast in this that you are understanding of me, says God. They are not understanding, says 10.12b. They are not understanding the Lord who does mercy, in other words, to all. That's 2 Corinthians 10. Read it sometime, 12 through 18. Don't stop till you get through 18. We are saved according to right, not righteous works. We are not saved by righteous works that we have done, but according to his mercy, says Titus 3, 5. We are the people of God because we have received mercy, says First Peter 2, 10. Merci, says the Frenchman. Thank you for the mercy of God. Mercy which the Lord does to all. So it's no coincidence that the passage against competition and comparison, do this Bible study in Second Corinthians, and you'll have seed thoughts for 15 Bible studies in this one, one thing. Every one of these messages end up being a doctoral dissertation if I was in theology class, but I don't have a lot of time. So I'm trying to hit you with everything I got, which will turn your attention to everything God is and everything God has. That's the whole thing right now. Nothing else matters more. Lots of things matter. Nothing matters more than knowing him. Second Corinthians 10, 12 to 13, against comparison and measuring themselves by themselves, concludes with a quotation of, guess what? Jeremiah 9, 24. The verse I rode into Pittsburgh on from New England is this verse. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Define your ministry in a few words, five words, boasting in the Lord. Four words. It's a boast in the Lord. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord, says Psalm 34. My soul will make her boast in the Lord. I will speak of his righteousness and his alone, Psalm 71, 16. I will speak of his righteousness all day long. Do you speak of his righteousness all day long? Psalm 71, 24. His righteousness, his act. You know what his righteousness is? His saving act in Christ for all. That's the gospel. And everyone who's elect is also called to be a witness of God's reconciliation of all things in Christ. That was this midweek message. I hope you're getting those because you're not going to get Romans as I'm teaching it until you get them all, all the teachings, somehow, one way or another. That's just an urgent recommendation. You can do what you want. You're free. So it closes with a quote. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, 2 Corinthians ten seventeen, And then a Pauline principle follows right up on the heels of that. He says, for it is not the one who commends himself. This is the verse I wrote in on to Pittsburgh in 1978, November 17th. For it is not the one who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. 
In terms of ministry, a man or a woman who commends herself or himself is not approved. But the man or woman whom the Lord commends is approved. What does that mean? It means that the Lord commends those who boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord commends, speaks highly of, rewards, we could even say, those whose ministry is a boast in the righteousness of God, in his act of universal and unconditional deliverance in Christ. The Lord commends those whose circumcision is of the heart, which is a circumcision performed not by human hands, but by God. God commends those who are acted upon by God, not those who act for God. The Lord commends those whose circumcision is of the heart, which is a circumcision, metaphorically speaking, performed by God in Christ and by the Christ Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, who is none other than Christ the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It is not only in Romans where the influence of Paul from this specific passage in Jeremiah, is significantly deployed and fanned out. It goes through all of Paul's epistles, including what's arguably the first in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved, unconditional grace, through faith, the faithfulness of Christ in which you have been graciously participants. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul's always invested in this. Jeremiah's always invested in Paul. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24 specifically. In fact, if you read in 1 Corinthians, in the context of the word of the cross in 118, he ends up quoting Jeremiah 9, 24 in 131. The word of the cross is directly related to the end of human boasting in oneself. The Corinthian letters deploy the same passage. Again, 1 Corinthians one thirty-one. Write these down, study these, do a Bible study on them. In the context of the word of the cross, 1 Corinthians one eighteen is another passage quotation of Jeremiah. In that very passage, Paul shows that God ordained that the world, by its wisdom, does not come to know God. In one twenty-one, That Christ is the wisdom of God in one twenty-four. And that God made him to be wisdom for us, as well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in 130, so that in 131, as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Why does that keep showing up? And why does it keep showing up in the significant junctures of Paul's gospel? My hypothesis seems to be working. It's fanning out, not only in Romans, but elsewhere. If certain Jewish saints in Rome believed that the Gentiles did not come to know God by their observation of nature, terrestrial and celestial, or of creation, and if they felt free to judge the Gentiles for their idolatrous conversion of God's glory into the glory of the creature, then these same Jewish saints should be informed, and Paul does inform them lovingly, that their own knowledge of God via the law is also woefully lacking. Because God is not definitively known in creation or in the law, but in the incarnation of the word 
who is God, the Word made flesh. More definitively, in fact, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of the Word made flesh, this is our salvation. The wise person must not boast in her wisdom. How about that? When I read Karl Barth's commentary on Romans, he would always say, a man, the man, men, man, man. You always have to say men and women, he and her, because he was in that day and era where it was just about the male gender. But now you have to say his or her, his or her, his or her, men and women, in order to really make it right. And that's what he meant, but they wrote different back then, 1933. But I think we're a little past 1933. Theology's gone through some developments, thank God. So, the wise person must not boast in his wisdom. The wise person must not boast in her wisdom. I agree with Congdon, C-O-N-G-O-N, C-O-N-G-D-O-N. I agree with Congdon. We have to go beyond saying that Jesus Christ has saving significance. We must say that Jesus Christ is saving significance. That's his own words. He used the word saving significance all over the place. I couldn't believe it. Had to be listening to my tapes, obviously. No, he wasn't. I think we have to go beyond this, even that. And I think we have to say that Jesus Christ is Universal saving significance. God has made him to be wisdom, which means the wisdom unto salvation that 2 Timothy 3.15 talks about. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God unto salvation. Jesus Christ is the saving wisdom of God. As it says in one of the strategically placed doxologies in Romans, directly following the declaration that God has shut up both Jews and Gentiles in disobedience. See, we're coming around again. In order to have mercy to all, God said, Oh, the depths of the wealth and wisdom and knowledge of the scientist. Oh, wait a minute. Off track there. Oh, the depths of the wealth and wisdom and knowledge of the philosopher. Plato, Aristotle, all the way down to Paul Ricoeur, the scientist. Like Carl Sagan, who invented the most marvelous word, Googleplex. Google must not glory in its knowledge, but they have all knowledge now. No, they don't. They don't have the wisdom of the cross. The wisdom of God is salvific. So, oh, the depth of the wealth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The wisdom of God is Jesus Christ. God has made him to be wisdom for us, for us, for us. 1 Corinthians one thirty and righteousness for us, for us, for us, and sanctification or holiness for us, for us, and apolutrosis, complete redemption, including its eschatological final closure. So that no man ought to boast. 
No woman ought to boast. Why should any man or woman boast in his or her wisdom? Why should any man or woman glory in others who are boasting of their wisdom? If anyone boasts, let him or her boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ is our salvation. He is our wisdom. God's wisdom is soteriocentric. It's centered, even epicentered, we could say, in the saving work of Jesus Christ. I say epicenter like the epicenter of an earthquake, but not in the negative sense, but in the positive sense. Identifying Jesus Christ of the focal point as the focal point of both the centripetal, that's, I'm doing that on purpose, and, and centrifugal. Centrifugal is action that goes out from a center, goes out from a center. Centripetal is power that comes into a center. It's drawn into a center. The cross is both centripetal, that it draws all men to him, And the cross also goes out and even leaves the 99 to catch the one, to find the one, the one. Because salvation is as radically individualistic as it is collective and universalistic. The cross has both centripetal or centripetal action. It does like the New Jerusalem, invites all the nations to come in. The church is a gated community, but all the gates are open. The church, that's ecclesiology, is a gated community. But all the gates are open all the time, day and night, like the New Jerusalem, centripetal. That means all the nations are drawn in because Christ is at the heart. Where the message is preached of Christ and him crucified, the energy of the cross is centripetal. It pulls in. But it's also centrifugal. It goes out. Jesus Christ not only draws all to himself, centripetal, if he's lifted up, If I'm lifted up, I'll draw all to myself, centripetal. He's also centrifugal. He's like the shepherd that goes out from the 99 to find the one and searches until he finds it. There isn't one that's going to be left. In Psalm 119, 176, the very last verse of that word of God psalm, I am a little lamb, find me. Find me. I saw this ad, there's this... Kind of attractive girl. She's such a fool. She says, come and find me. What? You just invited a thousand predators to your door. But I'm a lamb in this world. Lord, come and find me. And he finds me. He finds the one. He doesn't leave the one. Each and every one is going to have the world-shattering experience of the gospel, which is a saving experience. And so in closing... Salvation, please get this principle down. If you forget everything I said today, don't forget this. It's in bold italics in my notes. Salvation is equally radically universalistic and individualistic. Again, God's wisdom is soteriocentric, centered even epicentered in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, God's wisdom is cruciform. It's shaped like a cross. God's wisdom is cruciform. This is the last thing I'll say because it's practical. God's wisdom is cruciform. The word of the cross, the logic of the cross, the theology of the cross. If we conform to a cruciform life, take up your cross and follow me, 
I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. If we take up this cruciform life, we will never boast in our own wisdom, and we will therefore never provoke others to envy or anger. Instead, we will add and not detract from the corporate mystical experience of the thing we call fellowship in God's Son. If I glory, and this is what I intend and hope for my own life, if I glory in nothing but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and if you glory in nothing but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we have fellowship without anger, without envy, without fear, without inordinate ambition or excessive competition. Competition is great if you're a snowboarder in the Olympics and a 17-year-old American young man won a gold last night just doing that. That's good. Competition should not be that for honor in the church. If I glory in nothing but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and you glory in nothing but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we got fellowship. It's going on. We aren't, listen to this. We aren't comparing each other with each other, but we're boasting together and in unity in the incomparable Lord. We aren't comparing one another with each other. We're boasting in the incomparable Lord. We're walking together in the Christ spirit. We are not provoking one another to anger or envy. You know what we're doing? We're early joiners of the eschatological chorus of every human being and all that has breath with one mouth glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 15.6. We are early joiners of the universal chorus of praise to the God who saves. Let all that has breath praise the Lord who saves Yahweh. To the God who saves and who has made the Lord Jesus Christ his saving significance and our salvation. This is wisdom. God's wisdom is salvific. Our God is the only wise God. As Romans 16, 27 says, our God is the God who saves. That's what he does because that's what he is. Again, Congdon, David W., a young theologian who's on the bleeding edge of theology's development in the 21st century. He hit the X ring when he says, God's being is the act of salvation. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful truth. And wow, is it such a benefit to our soul to recognize your benefits to us. Praise the Lord and forget not his benefits, said the psalmist. Forget not his benefits. He has made Christ to be for us wisdom. 